0: Well, um, the text has Jesus traveling from town to town doing what Jesus does, right? He goes from town to town. He heals people. He, he cures the sick. He raises the dead to life. He does all sorts of things, and he is heading slowly but surely, very decidedly toward Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the place that Jesus is marching toward in Luke. Luke has this narrative progressing slowly but surely, to Jerusalem, the place where Christ would be crucified. Jesus is on a mission. And as he's going from place to place and from town to town, somebody sticks up their hands and says, Lord, someone asked him, are only a few going to be saved? There's that question. Are only a few people going to make it, Lord? Now, this guy, he's probably asking about the Israelites, because in the culture of the time, there was this understanding that all of the Israelites, by nature of just them being Israelites, were going to be saved, that we're, they were going to enter into um, the afterlife. There's a, there's a, uh, a passage, think, of a ruling called Sanhedrin 10.1, which is a document from the time and an interpretation that people used to help guide them um, on what the Old Testament said. And it said this, Sanhedrin 10, 1 said, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. So, so this would have been a, a text that those people would have used to help them understand that all Israelites will have a share in the world to come. And so Jesus is there now, and he's talking about repenting, and that only those who repent enter into life. And someone asked, Lord, so are only a few going to be saved because I got this in my background, or is everyone going to make it? Well, How does Jesus respond to the man? Well, he says this in 24. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. See what Jesus does, what he's been doing over and over and over again in the past couple chapters. Someone asks a question and Jesus answers in a way that they don't expect. And Jesus directs his attention, not to the world out there, but directs his own attention to what's going on in here. The man asks the question, and Jesus says, basically, well, let me ask you about you. Jesus takes the question about everyone and decides See, and we might have all had that question, like, God, what, do, what are you doing out there? And Jesus takes a moment and said, well, let's, let's pause on that for a minute, and let me ask you what's going on in here, what's going on in your heart. And he begins to talk about entering the narrow door. And as he talks about this, he gives us at least three wrong ways to enter the kingdom and one right way to enter the kingdom, three wrong ways and one right right way. The first wrong way that we see in the text is that you cannot enter the kingdom of God by your own effort. You see this picture of a man standing outside the door and knocking, saying, God, let me in. Let me into your kingdom. And there's nothing that they could do to earn God's love. The religious society at the time would have heaped on all sorts of laws and rules and regulations, things to, to follow the Torah, to follow the law perfectly. They would have had all sorts of customs built around adherence to God's law, but they would miss the point altogether because you don't enter the kingdom by the works that you do. You cannot do it. You can be the best husband or wife you can be. You can be the best... Um, Dad or mom you can be, you can be the best employee you can be, but none of those things earns you status with God because he is holy and you are sinner. He is just and we are unjust. You can't earn your way into the kingdom by strict adherence to a moral code you, or any other way. You cannot earn it you've sinned against a perfectly righteous God. And those who think that they can enter into the kingdom of God, into life with God that begins now and goes into eternity by their own effort will be sorely disappointed because that's not how it works. So that's the first wrong way. The second of the wrong ways that Jesus points out is proximity. The second thing is proximity. You don't enter the kingdom by being close to it. Look at uh, what the verse says. Um, you will stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open for us. And he will answer, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, We ate and drank in your presence. These people saying, like, God, we were near you. God, we were close to you. God, we went to church. God, we we were there. We were around you. Surely that, that gets us. That counts for something. And you think that maybe because you grew up in church or maybe because you're here now that that's earned you someplace with Jesus. But you're wrong because proximity doesn't earn it. Your family cannot earn it for you. Being close to somebody who's close to Jesus will not get you into his kingdom. That's not how it works. And the last thing is familiarity. So you have, you don't get in by your own effort. You don't make it in by your proximity, by just being like, these people won't make it by just being near Jesus, following him, listen to his, just listening to his teaching. And they won't make it by familiarity. Look at what it says there in the passage. He says that, They say, well, you taught in our streets. So these were people that would have been maybe even familiar with the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus is saying that just because you know about my teaching, just because you're familiar with what I say, doesn't make you a follower, doesn't make you safe with me, doesn't give you permission to enter the kingdom. Just because you know something doesn't make you my follower. And you might have had that same experience. Just because you grew up in church, went to CCD, went through confirmation, maybe even maybe you said the sinner's prayer at one point, just maybe you went to children's church, just because you have familiarity with the teachings of Jesus doesn't make you a follower. Because you have to decide what you will do with Jesus for you. Familiarity will not get you into the kingdom it's not just about knowing the right things or being in the right place it's about knowing the right person okay don but if if i if i can't earn this why does jesus say and what does jesus mean when he says in the passage make every effort to enter through the narrow door well that's a really good question and what i think Jesus means here is that making every effort means to repent of your sin and repent of all the wrong ways that you've thought about Jesus and to follow him as the Messiah. To repent of your sins and your fallenness, to lay them down at his feet, to enter the narrow way means to to Lay your life down before King Jesus to say that he is the one sent from God to submit your life before him and to, to recognize that, o- that life in the kingdom is only found through him. And this is great news because this means that God has been loving us all along and that he's calling us to lay down our lives to Jesus, before Jesus, and to recognize that we can't earn our way into his love, but that his love stands before us in Christ. And we're called to lay our lives down and recognize that Jesus is the one sent from God. And Jesus, in his telling of this story to this man or this woman who, who asked the question, he is answering it. He's saying, hey, I know you can be worried about what God's doing all around the world and whether or not he's saving people. But I want to ask you, have you believed in Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Have you recognized the Messiah before you? Jesus says, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they'll see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and prophets And people will, and people won't be there. It was assumed that their proximity, that their that their family tree, that they're growing up in synagogue, would earn them a place in the kingdom. But Jesus is saying that there will be some not there because they have not believed in God's Messiah. So who makes it, and who will be saved? Well, Jesus says, they will come from east and west, north and south to share in the banquet of the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first. They will come from east and west. Jesus answers the question, first part of the question by saying, well, you need to strive to enter the narrow door. You need to lay down your own life before Jesus the Messiah. And then recognize there'll be some people who, who because they don't lay down their lives before Jesus, will not enter into his kingdom. And that there though those people may not make it, there will be people that come from north and from south, from east and from west, and they will be there. So in one way, Jesus is saying, look, my mission is much bigger than your mind, than this person's mind could even fathom. Because it involves not just does all Israel make it. Jesus is saying that Gentiles, people, people that seem like they were far from God, the, the lowest, the least in the lost, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, those people who've laid down their lives before Jesus that recognize that He is the Messiah, those people are gonna make it. In the people that had all the religious pedigree, that knew their Bibles, but that did not believe and trust in Jesus, that they would not. Jesus says, don't worry about the world out here, out there. Worry about your own heart. And then realize that God is up to something much bigger than your mind can even comprehend. The way of the king is to repent. And to admit that he is the way. And the certainty of Jesus' mission brings security to his followers. So if that's the way of the king, what is the work of the king? Some Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, you need to get out of here because Herod's coming and he wants to kill you. And Jesus has some startling words in verse 32. Look at it. He says, go tell that fox Look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Yet it is necessary that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. And you see what Jesus is saying in response to this threat of Herod is that, look, I'm going around and I'm healing people. Listen, what Jesus is saying is that his mission and his kingdom cannot be stopped. His mission and his kingdom cannot be stopped. It was breaking in. God's kingdom was breaking in. And Jesus is like, look, I'm going around. I'm healing people. People are being released of their diseases. It cannot be stopped. Nothing can stop the kingdom of God going forward. Nothing. No king would stop it. No Herod would stop it. Jesus is saying that his kingdom won't be stopped and that his kingdom can't be contained. Jesus won't be constrained by the threats of Herod. And instead, he's freeing people from demons. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives. He's giving sight to the blind. He's binding up the brokenhearted. His kingdom cannot be contained. It will go forward. And he is setting people free, free To worship, we just saw recently in a passage that when he healed a daughter of Abraham, in in uh, earlier in chapter thirteen, that she was set free to worship. She was hunched over, and she was set free to worship. God's kingdom cannot be contained; it will go forth. Jesus has a mission that he will complete. No suffering, no opposition, and no Herod will stop it. So what was Jesus saying when he says, go tell that fox? Well, as one scholar has pointed out, it basically translates to go tell that little peon, weakling, nobody weasel, Herod, that that's how it translates. Jesus doesn't just say Herod won't stop it. Jesus points out that Herod is just a pawn in the plan of God. Jesus is saying that Herod is not who he thinks he is. Herod thinks he's big. Herod thinks he's a big deal. Herod thinks he can stop me and my kingdom. But tell that peon, he's just a little plan of God and that I'm going to heal people, I'm going to free people, and in three days, I'm going to complete my work. Nothing can stop the mission of God that would go forward. And what Herod would think was a victory in his own part in the process of the crucifixion, God would use to turn into a victory over Herod. Because you see God, he sets up rulers and he knocks them down. And Herod thought he was gonna stop Jesus, but Jesus is like, look, in three days, I'm gonna complete my work, referring to the resurrection. Nothing can get in the way of the purposes of of God's kingdom. And friends, the work of Jesus then is eternally secure. Jesus says that he will have victory. And this is good news, friends. This means that Jesus says that the certainty of his mission brings security to his followers. That when you think that God's kingdom is in retreat, He is actually using it towards victory. That when you look around the world and you are discouraged, you need to remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees about Herod, go tell that fox. Because what Jesus is saying is that nothing is going to stop his kingdom. When you feel defeated in your sin, when you're you're questioning God's plan, you can look at the words of Jesus saying, go tell that fox and remember that he was certain he was going to complete his mission. And if he completed his mission on the cross and on that empty tomb, he will complete his mission in your own heart. No wavering, no wandering can stop the love of Jesus for you. You are secure in him, and in, in his plan and in his mission. His gospel would go forward. And it includes me and you, and so we can take a deep breath and rest in the security we have in Jesus, because he was certain about his work, and he completed his work. You are secure because of a person, not by your familiarity, not by your proximity, and not by your effort. You are secure because of what Christ has done. Several years back, um, my brother was visiting uh, from Pittsburgh, and he he loves the Red Sox. and so he, I thought it'd be fun to take him to a rest, uh, a Red Sox game. And I have a, I had a buddy who had some contacts down there, and I said, "Hey, uh, it's the last minute, but can I get in touch with your contact and go to the game tonight?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reach out to this person. His his name is Pete. We'll call him Pete um, for today." So. I sent Pete a text, never met Pete before, and was like, uh, hey, Pete, so-and-so gave me your number, um, said to reach out to you about going to the game tonight. Can you, do you think you can get it in? And Pete's like, yeah, how many people you got? I was like, oh, I got um, myself, my wife, and my brother. And he's like, yeah, meet me at gate C. Okay. I've never met Pete before. I don't know exactly who Pete is, what he looks like. And so I go down to Fenway, kind of hoping this works. And uh, I'm standing at Gate C, talking to Nicole, talking to my brother Luke, and kind of waiting. Pete, we're here outside of Gate C. Pete's nowhere to be found yet. And um, I'm standing there outside and just kind of like looking around. I'm like, Pete. No, that's not Pete. Um, and, And some dude walks up to me and goes, you Don? And I said, yep, that's me. He said, follow me. And so I followed Pete, and uh, I believed that Pete could get me into the game. And sure enough, we walk around the security guard station, and uh, we're just walking. I'm catching up about our mutual friend, and he walks us out this, this hallway and onto the first baseline, onto the cement right by the field. And he grabs three chairs, and he sets them out and says, have a seat, and uh, says to me, listen, I know you don't have tickets, and I know these aren't ticketed seats, but if somebody stops you, tell them to call me, and it will be okay. And it was a lot of fun. I got like to be in a really cool spot at the game, and my brother got to be in a good spot, lots of action in that particular spot along, right along first baseline, right on the cement, right on the field there. And I had access to that, not because of my proximity to Fenway Park. Like I didn't like stand next to Fenway and think, man, if I just stand here, I'll get into the game eventually. Or I had access, not because of my familiarity with the players at the time or, or, or who was going to be there that day i didn 't have access because I thought you know what maybe, maybe if I just push my way through the security guards, that will get me into the game. No, I had access because I knew a person, and that person, because of who he was and what he did, not just didn 't just guarantee me access but kept my place there, knew that I could not be thrown out of that game. Because my, I didn't purchase the tickets. I got in on someone else's name. And friends, we get into the kingdom of God, not because of what we do. Not because of our, our being close to church. Not because of the effort that we have. We get in because of a person in what he has done. And because we know him and because he knows us, we are safe with him. Nothing can throw us out because it wasn't anything we did. It was all because of Christ and what he did. That's how Jesus works for you and he holds you. You are secure in Jesus. And the certainty of Jesus' mission brings security to his father's children. Jesus was certain about what he was out to do. And it's meant to encourage us Jesus ends the passage, and he begins to talk about Jerusalem, and we see the desire of the king. Jerusalem, in Luke, is a, is kind of an ominous place. It's the place that the religious authorities were seated, and it's the place that Jesus accused those Jesus accused those religious authorities of killing the prophets, and Jesus knows that he's going to be killed there too. He'll be tried. He'll be crucified there in Jerusalem. And what's Jesus's tone as he thinks about his own death, as he thinks about the lostness of the place and the people that would kill him? Jesus's tone is not one of vindictiveness. It's not one of anger but it's one of deep compassion and desire. The tone of Jesus is a tone of patience, and tone of deep desire. Look, feel His heart in verse thirty-four. Look at it. He says, "Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills." The prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus, in light of the, the crucifixion, in light of the death, in light of the pain, and in light of the suffering, he experienced deep desire and compassion for them. And says so Jerusalem, how I wish I could just gather you together. And the picture is this picture of a, of a mother hen gathering its chicks under its wings. It's a picture of shelter and security. And it's a picture all throughout the Bible. Psalm 91 says this, Um, The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings and his faithfulness will be a protective shield. Jesus is saying this is what I want to do to you. His desire was for them. He wanted them to come home, but they would not have it. They would not have the love of Jesus. They would, And Jesus would experience rejection, a rejection that would lead to crucifixion. And all along, what Jesus wanted is that they would come home and that he would protect them. But they wouldn't have it. And This is one of those passages that makes us realize that our choices really do matter. Jesus, he will not make anyone become a follower of him. He will not force anyone into heaven. And we have a choice to make about Jesus. And yes, I believe in the sovereignty and in the rule of God over all things. But the Bible holds this together with it, that our choices have consequences. The people who reject Jesus reject his heaven and choose hell. C.S. Lewis says this in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that, are in hell, all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is open. Our choices have real consequences. And God does not just force people to, against their will into heaven. But what we see here in this passage and what we see in Jesus is a God that if we turn and run to him, he will not turn us away. That his desire is for us. And so I plead with you because I think Jesus is pleading with us that we would turn to him, that we would run to him, that we would realize that his desire is for us. And so when you feel in the depths of your sin, when you feel the enemy accuse you and and cause you to doubt your own salvation, all you got to do is turn to the finished work of Christ on the cross and turn to this passage where you see that the desire of Jesus is not to turn you away and will turn no one away, but his desire is that you would come and protect and find shelter in the shadow of his wings. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, friends, let this serve as a warning to turn to him, to run to him. Because he alone can protect you. He alone can give you the security and the peace you're looking for. And if you're here and you're a Christian, remember no mistake, as one one of my favorite authors says, no mistake can hold a candle to the love that calls us home. Jesus' desire, the desire of the king, is that you would come to him. And that if you have come to him, you stand protected and secure under his wings because of his work. Last thing I think to, that's worth asking is if, if, if Jesus desired this for the very people that were his enemies and are going to kill him, do we desire, do we share his heart for the lost? Do we share his heart towards those who don't know him? Do we share this desire for our neighbors, our friends, our families, our colleagues, our, our coworkers, our classmates? Because you see, the, the certainty of Jesus' mission doesn't just give security to Jesus' followers, but it actually sends them into Jesus' world on his mission. That the certainty of what Jesus accomplished and will accomplish gives us security now, but it also sends us into the world on mission with hopefully a heart that looks like Jesus and that desires that people would run to him and find shelter in him. If you don't have that heart, I would just pray and ask God for it. Say, God, I don't have a heart for the lost. Would you give me a heart for them that they would know you? Would you give me a heart for them that I might say, conquered, conquered, how I'd love for you to gather under the wings of Jesus. Would you give me a heart for my neighbors and friends? I think that's a prayer God wants to answer. Because the heart of Jesus brings security to his followers. And it sends them on his mission. Friends, communion, this weekly meal we partake in, um, is a reminder of the certainty of the mission of Jesus. It's a reminder of all that he accomplished for us. It's a reminder of the security we have, not because of what we've done, but because of what's been done for us. It's a reminder that the mission of God will go forward and he will complete it because there was a man who was dead and is now alive and is reigning. It's a reminder that we are brought into this kingdom of God, not by what we do, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's a reminder that we are safe with Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to take communion this morning. and Instead, I would encourage you to take Christ, to place your faith in him, to say, Jesus, I wanna follow you. Jesus, I repent of what I've done. Jesus, would you save me? But if you're here today and you're a Christian, let this sacrament, this meal, minister to your faith and build you up because of what Christ has done for you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, Jesus took a cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray.